Welcome to Let's Get Ethical, a podcast of the Center for Ethics and its Ethics of AI Lab at the University of Toronto. Today we're talking to Professor Daniel Green, who has a PhD in American Studies, currently teaches at the iSchool at the University of Maryland, and before that, worked at the Social Media Collective at Microsoft Research New England. We'll talk to Professor Green about when did ethics of AI become a problem and how did that happen? Welcome, Daniel Green, um, to Let's Get Ethical, the podcast of the Center for Ethics and its Ethics of AI Lab. Um, Daniel Green is professor at the iSchool at the University of Maryland. Uh, and uh, we're delighted that you're with us today to talk about ethics of AI in context. Thank you. So happy to be here, Marcus. So one of the things that uh, I find uh, fascinating about your work is that you don't just do ethics of AI, but you do um, the context of ethics of AI. You talk about maybe the ethos of ethics of AI or the history or the sociology of it. Uh, how, how did you um, start to think about ethics of AI uh, in these terms? Yeah, so I'm a cultural studies scholar by training, and I've found that a lot of my disparate projects are connected with this interest in how does a problem become a problem? You know, how do we understand something of great societal importance with a similar vocabulary, of uh, a similar set of actors, of similar terms and solutions at the same time? Uh, so I noticed around 2017 uh, when I was doing a postdoc with Microsoft Research in Cambridge, Massachusetts, that, uh, you know, ethics were hot. Like, uh, we, you know, we're a couple of years into the new uh, AI summer where uh, machine learning and AI were doing things we hadn't seen done before. And we had also had, uh, you know, a series of public screw-ups around things like uh, the Compass Risk Score algorithm that ProPublica so uh, did such great work on. We had have now the you know specter of uh, fake news from the 2016 election, long-term fears about uh, automation and job loss. And I noticed around 2017 that inside industry and academe that this language of ethics and making AI ethical uh, just turned into a boom at the same time across whole different spaces where everyone was very, very into ethics. Uh, and I really wanted to know why that was, because it, it does not seem to me um, a, a totally logical move that the, the problem with machine learning, the problem with artificial intelligence is that it's unethical. You could have uh, a variety of other frames around corporate responsibility around just random accidents of complicated machines or around you know the increased power of, of big tech and capitalism that all make equal amounts of sense but ethics are the is the language that we landed on and I really wanted to figure out why that was and and when did you first have an inkling of uh, why that happened I mean ethics um, is convenient in, in some ways um, in that it's not law for example it's not not even regulation. So perhaps the temptation is to frame it in ethical terms mm -hmm. because that means nothing much is uh, expected of you. Yes, as a as a cynic and a Marxist, the the easiest answer is, oh well, this is just cover for business as usual, right? This, um, but I I tried to lean away from that, and especially with my co-authors um, Luke Stark and Anna Lauren Hoffman, to really recognize that 
this language around ethics, um, particularly values of, of fairness, accountability, and transparency, which, which then generate a, a whole conference and a whole series, uh, almost a new field, was really important to a lot of people. Uh, and it really did drive a lot of new research, a lot of new public policy initiatives, um, a lot of new corporate initiatives. Uh, it did work and it did things in the world. Uh, and I really don't think it would have that kind of power if it was just necessarily a facade. Um, so it was very important for us to figure out why it worked in what way, for whom, where, when, and why. So, so ethics is, in, in this way, possibly toothless compared to law or even regulation, but it also has things going for it. So one of the things that ethics has going for it is that um, it's inclusive, um, or at least it can be inclusive. You, you don't need a PhD in ethics to participate in the conversation about ethics. Did that also play a role in why, why ethics all of a sudden started to frame the conversation about AI? Yes and no. I, I think, um, yes, you know, ethics is, is a, a relatively, let's say, vaguely defined space where, where we can um, present new codes of ethics or new um, ethical principles that maybe don't require the, the hustle to pass a law. That's, I, I think that is definitely true. Um, but it is also like very important to a specific historical moment. You know what we see when we look at moments in the past when professions produce codes of ethics in uh, in law, in medicine, in physics after the atomic bomb. Uh, is these are moments where the profession is really grappling with its new public role, and often with a lot of distrust from the public. So one of the ways that we read the current ethical bonanza in AI is as a moment where uh, computer scientists, data scientists, you know, a, a broad variety of uh, engineering professionals, um, and to a lesser extent the you know, uh, legal and social scientific professionals working with them, are really dealing with a, a crisis of faith in big tech. Um, and we see that in a host of different places. You know, I, Seven or eight years ago, Twitter was responsible for the revolution in, in Egypt. You know, today, Facebook and Twitter are responsible for authoritarian regimes the world over. Um, so we have, you know, the public has turned on these places um, in a very, very noticeable way. And I, I think the um, kind of ethical boom of the last three or four years is a way for the profession to, to deal with that and for the profession to reflect on itself and its own role. How does uh, it want to bound membership in the profession? How does it describe its own values? Uh, and how does it advance those values in the world? And this is hard in a lot of ways because, you know, in, take medicine, for example, and stuff like the Hippocratic Oath, you know, there is a fairly, uh, you know, it differs from place to place, but you are licensed to be a medical practitioner. Let's hope, yeah. <laughs> One hopes. Um, or an engineer or a lawyer or something like that. And, and a, a failure of ethics in those places uh, often comes with a form of censure. You know, your, your license may be revoked, um, your credentials may be reviewed by the licensing board, there may be um, certain ethical uh, or legal or professional or financial consequences that come with breaking the, ethic, the code of ethics that you swore to. There isn't quite the same thing in the computing professions as yet. Um, so, I mean, the closest we might come to is, is the Association of um, Computing Machinery, the ACM, has, a, a, has developed a robust code of ethics 
um, for its practitioners, and people are certainly members of the ACM, but it's not like you need an ACM license to build a robot or a computer or something like that. So the, the profession is defining itself and thinking about its role in public, but it is still loosely defined relative to other professions that have done the same thing in the past. So, but do you think uh, the computing profession is on its way to even thinking of itself as a profession? So from, from the outside, being neither a, a computing person or an engineer, one of the things that, that I have noticed occasionally is that engineers tend to, especially when they're talking to computer scientists, tend to distinguish themselves from computer scientists precisely in, the, in this way. You know, we, we are the ones who are a profession, we are the ones uh, who are licensed, uh, and the computer scientist instead may think of herself as you know, someone who is not bound by these um, constraints of professional responsibility is, is out there, you, know, you can innovate as much uh, as, as, as crazily as you want to. Um, and that is kind of part of what it means to be a computer person as opposed to an engineering person. But do you think that there's a sense among computer people that they have become a profession or that they should become a profession or what well, what's where where are we when, uh, in, in in terms of kind of the historical evolution of computer science as a, as a profession so there i mean the first thing i would say is that we've definitely had moments like this before you know in, in the last uh time we really had an ai boom before what people in the profession would call the ai winter of the 80s, 80s and 90s um the last time we tried to really build robust AI systems and there was a real boom, and especially in the U.S. Um, state and defense-funded uh, AI research, uh, often following almost kind of like Chomskyan rules for developing like a universal AI grammar for how AI would approach different problems. The, la the last time we were doing these kind of things, there was certainly robust ethical debate um, throughout the profession and in communities um, attached to or critical of the profession about their role in society. So we have had these moments before the last time um, that we were dealing with this kind of stuff. And it was very much in the public uh, domain then too. You know, uh, at the same time that students on American campuses uh, and Canadian ones um, were protesting, for example, like their draft cards, uh, that we're going to send them to Vietnam, they were at the same time protesting and occasionally burning at the same protest um, punch cards for computing systems um, because oh. they saw these punch I, cards... I didn't know that. Yeah, was, they saw these punch cards as pieces of the war effort um, that were right. uh, supporting um, defense-funded pro projects at their own universities, um, whether or not that was you know materially connected to the war in, in Southeast Asia. Um, so there was uh, very, very much a critique of the kind of... Um, uh, depersonalization and formalization of computing. People didn't want to be a number, and they were worried about the surveillance powers of the state, and, and to a lesser extent, corporate America, specifically IBM. Today, I think that sense of professionalism, we could call it class consciousness, um, is probably strongest at the top of the computing professions. Um, so you see folks like um, like Jeff Bezos at Amazon or Brad Smith at Microsoft um, or Zuckerberg and his repeated congressional testimonies, very much working out in public what the relationship between big tech and the rest of the world is. You know, that, I mean, 
if nothing else, that was why Zuckerberg did that kind of like tour across America like two or three years ago was to really say like, okay, I'm trying to figure out um, how, what I should say and what I should do so that you people aren't scared of me so that I can talk to you on your terms and that kind of thing. Um, so I think it's very much true at the top of the profession. As far as like the kind of um, bodies that, that train or might, you know, theoretically license computing professionals, I, I know um, part of the ethics boom has been this explosion of new kind of ethical classes um, within CS programs or in high schools like mine, um, new centers uh, like the one we're speaking in right now, or uh, you know centers for AI for social good um, all over the place. Um, whether or not those are a you know core part of computing curricula and a core part of computing training is an empirical question. My, my sense is that they're often tacked on at the end. Um, but it is clear that people are thinking about the need for, at minimum, the appearance of these things. But I, I think like more generously that like we are taking kind of tentative first steps to, to bound what is a quite difficult profession to bound. You know, it's, it's relatively easy to say what a civil engineer or a medical professional is but a computing professional is is much harder. I mean, like the, the power of computer science is um, in part because it mixes this very specific engineering ethos, you just gotta build a thing that works, with a very broad basic research ethos, um, closer to mathematics, where you're trying to figure out fundamental laws of information and behavior. Um, so the profession itself is quite hard to bound. I, I think there are some uh, forces at the top that are, that are trying to do so, perhaps as an effort to you know, evade regulation or build up public trust, but uh, you know, it, is, it is a really important moment for the profession to figure out what it is, who belongs in it, and what the rules are. Yeah, I, I find this, uh, this notion of a profession very, very interesting. So I'm um, also a law professor and... and uh, <laughs> Uh, it so happens I teach legal ethics, mm -hmm. so um, and I teach it to students who have to take it. Um, and I always think there is, a, you know, a kind of a, a central irony at the heart of this course, uh, given that let's just say, let's say lawyers are not necessarily known for their their you know um, pristine ethics, mm -hmm. so. There's always, I think, an important part of, of the very kind of enterprise of legal ethics uh, is to um, make lawyers appear uh, very ethical, yeah. partly because no one thinks they actually are ethical. Yeah. Um, there's an audience for it. There's an audience for it, and um, and you know, it's, anyway. So there, are, there, are, there certainly is a uh, you know a, an advanced notion of what legal ethics is supposed to be, mm -hmm. um, but it's not necessarily a kind of uh, enterprise that I would think of as as a model for for any other um, group of people who are serious about ethics as opposed to setting up a system uh, of ethics. Um, so I'm uh, I'm I'm curious to what extent this concept of a profession uh, has any role to play because certainly if among lawyers the assumption is that we are a profession and one of the things it means to be a profession is to have ethical standards uh, and, and my sense is that 
the, the computer science community, to the extent there is such a thing at all, uh, uh, may not want to think of itself as a profession in the first place. And yes, and, and I think there is you know robust debate within the community. Uh, and I'll, I'll say this as someone who is both sometimes inside and sometimes outside the community. There's robust debate about whether it can even count as a profession. Yeah. But I, I think the argument that me and my colleagues are, are making usually is that uh, computing has been forced to at least consider professionalization and has been forced by historical circumstance to talk about these ethical values. You know, the I, I really do not think it is a coincidence that uh, a lot of this ethical boom follows the 2016 election in the U.S. Uh, where we see a, you know, a sincere... Uh, crisis of faith in liberal institutions and in the sensible rules of business as usual, and that you know leads to a, a host of concerns about populism and all these uh, the failure of liberal institutions in a, in a variety of domains. So we have that at the same time that we also have really like the engineering version of that problem: fake news. You know, fake news is the kind of engineering version of the crisis of faith in liberal institutions insofar as it's this problem of malicious actors who are not following the usual rules about how voters should rationally behave and are perverting the means of communication that were supposed to bring us democracy. I, I think that becomes a way to kind of um, formalize the problem of this crisis of faith in liberal institutions. And it is from that that we see uh, places like, oh, I don't know, like the Berkman Klein Center or something like that, start to really think about ethical responses to this crisis. It is really after November 2016 that we start to see this boom um, in ethical manifestos from different industry groups like the Partnership on AI um, to benefit society, um, from within large corporations like, like Microsoft, my previous employer, um, like Amazon, like Google, uh, and in a host of other um, kind of civil society organizations too, like uh, uh, the Montreal De Declaration on uh, Machine Learning is, is a cooperation between various like engineers, lawyers, philosophers, and stuff like that. And it all starts to come into play um, after we start to see this, this crisis in liberal institutions that comes at the same time as we start seeing uh, machine learning and AI really start to play a bigger role in public affairs. So computing may not wish to professionalize because it may wish, you know, in, in many ways, vague boundaries are, are an advantage in a lot of ways because you can move in and out of them as you please, take on new problems, apply yourselves in new ways. But I think historical circumstances have forced computing to respond in these ethical terms in the way it did force other professions in the past when they had moments of crisis that the public was really worried about. You know, physicists in during the Cold War are a great example. I mean, the whole profession carried the specter of nuclear annihilation, and they very much needed to talk about what their role was at the time. Uh, computing may be in a similar position. Uh, and that's neat. before we even get to push back from within the profession itself, where we've seen like this variety of um, tech worker uprisings across big tech, where they are often communicating uh, sometimes within this ethical language, sometimes without, 
But either way, the profession is clearly under a great deal of pressure, and these codes of ethics are one way to react to it. Yeah, so I, I think the, the example of physics um, is really interesting because I think everyone remembers that there was a huge crisis and people got really freaked out about nuclear weapons and, and physicists figured out, wow, you know, we maybe we need to think about um, how we could think about what we're doing and not just keep doing cooler and cooler and more, and more destructive things. Um, but I also think, I think it's interesting because I, I've never thought about this as the beginning of the physics profession. Um, I, I can see how it's about physicists realizing that they can't just keep doing what they're doing. They need to think about what they're doing and whether there's some kind of ethical normative constraints on what they're doing. Um, but I don't associate with with the creation of a profession of, of, of physicists. Um, so I'm, I'm I, I guess I'm just always curious um, why you need a profession in, in order to to you know, to think about ethical things. To me, the distinction between engineers and computer scientists kind of makes this point because sometimes it's the same person. Mm -hmm. So I know people who are you know trained as computer scientists, but they teach in engineering departments, for example, and then so depending on, you know, what, what time of day you talk to them, they're either one or the other. So um, it, it's not clear to me that there's a, you know, kind of a, a, a fundamental distinction between one or the other, because one is a member of a profession and the other maybe isn't. Um, the question may, may be whether they uh, see any kind of normative constraints uh, on how they think and how they on how they work, um, because professions, thinking about doctors or certainly lawyers, is about keeping people out, which is talk about a kind of crisis of faith. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's you know, if, if you like it, it's it's radically anti-democratic. The kind of very idea of a profession yeah. is to it's to not let you know the riffraff pretend to be lawyers or doctors. Very much so. Um, so I'm wondering if if you can push for ethics without. Uh, pushing for professionalization. Yeah, I think um, that's one of the things we're working on right now and kind of the update to our 2019 paper is alternatives to the ethics language that is emerging from within the computing profession. And I, I, I mean, I think generally, you know, historically, these things often look like neat and tidy at the end of the process or said, oh, obviously law is a profession. Uh, when... You know, that took centuries and many fights and there's, you know, uh, much disagreement within it. You know, it may be in 40 or 50 years we look back on computing and say, oh, of course computing is a profession. It makes a lot of sense. Um, but I, I, they're outside of the um, kind of professional codes of ethics that we look at that have only ballooned even more since we first wrote that paper. Uh, we also see challenges to the computing industry based in very different visions of the good life and the good society. So the one I would give is, well, we'll do two. Um, so on the one hand, from kind of outside the computing industry, there is an abolitionist ethic advanced by the movement for black lives and by immigrant defense groups like Conmigente in the U.S., and these activists of color, primarily, have recognized that the computing industry is a crucial part of the mass incarceration regime in the U.S., and especially of migrant detention in 
the US. So companies like Amazon, Microsoft, Salesforce, what have you, are unsurprisingly, because the government is a massive enterprise customer for computing, um, providing services that helps ICE do their job. Uh, and especially last spring, um, at the time that the child detention crisis on the U.S.-Mexico border was getting a lot of attention. Um, these protests against uh, companies providing these tools for ICE, uh, both inside and outside the company, really kicked up. The abolitionist ethic is very, very different from the professional ethic of computing because the professional ethic for computing generally assumes that something is going to get built. It is an engineering problem. We have to build the best solution to it. Uh, and those solutions may not be technical. They may be legal. They may be professional codes of ethics. They may be new ways of doing research. There's, there's a variety of those solutions, but, but there, we can build a solution to this problem. The abolitionist ethic, uh, particularly in the form that it takes in the movement for black lives, where even at a local level, there's a criticism of police departments that says we should divest money from harmful policing solutions and instead invest that into community solutions and schooling, healthcare, that kind of thing. The abolitionist ethic proposes that, you know, frankly, some things just should not exist. It is the, the best for society, is the best for the good life if we say no more often. If we say never again should we do this. That is very, very different from what the computing profession does. So there are absolutely alternatives to what is happening out there. Um, and it will be a matter of social struggle as to how those alternatives are either incorporated into the mix or legislated into existence or something like that. But these, this is a live debate that people are fighting over right now, and it is a life and death matter. Yeah, and, and, and I mean, my gut reaction um, would be to to keep the idea of professions out of it may, may actually um, foster the kind of inclusive conversation that, that um, struggling with these substantive uh, issues would, would require because you really wouldn't want the profession to be deciding them because they're a profession because as professionals they have to care about ethics. You mm -hmm. know, it's, it's, mm -hmm. not, it's not really a professional issue anymore, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a societal issue. But, but so I just wanted to make sure that, that uh, we get the title of your 2019 paper in there, which is because it's awesome. Uh, it's also a cool title. Better, nicer, clearer, fairer. A critical assessment of the movement for ethical artificial intelligence and machine uh, learning. Um, yes, I'm usually against puns, but we're all big Daft Punk fans, so it just kind of fit. Okay, <laughs> awesome. Um, and um, so one of the one of the many many many. Um, threads running through this uh, fascinating paper is, is the one that you, you just brought up, uh, which is the distinction between you know, processual or procedural um, reform and, and substantive reform. And um, uh, one of the things that I, I was curious about is, is whether I, I read the paper correctly that, that there's kind of the sense among you and your colleagues that um, what's going on in the conversation about ethics of the eyes is a little bit of an appropriation of kind of the, the tools of, of critique um, that data, critical data studies, for example, has developed um, without 
taking along the kind of commitment to, to substantive uh, conversation that, that perhaps in critical data studies uh, it, it goes along with, uh, with the procedural points. Is that, is that about right? Or? Yeah, no, that, that is deeply a concern. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll hedge that with by saying that there are, you know, important processual uh, critiques that are both within and, and not within um, AI ethics as it currently exists. Um, so there is, as with many other professional codes of ethics, um, a sense of responsibility to various other stakeholders, the, you know, the um, including them in the process of research because they will... Um, bear the brunt of whatever decisions you end up making, that is different from what many critics, including ourselves, say, um, a, democrat a democratization of uh, AI design and, and machine learning processes. Um, you know, the, the idea that you have stakeholders that should be consulted is very different than giving people a veto power over your decision. So there, there are procedural arguments that are inside and outside of that um, of AI ethics as it currently exists. Uh, but yes, one, one of the things motivating the paper was, you know, some, some deep soul searching for the people who, read it, uh, who wrote it. You know, I was, uh, I'm an STS scholar that was uh, working in a corporate lab that is, you know, quite similar to what like Xerox Park or Bell Labs was a couple decades ago. Uh, I've since returned to the academy. One of the current authors um, was, uh, Luke Stark was, in the academy when we wrote the paper and is now working in a different Microsoft lab out of it. Um, and these arrangements uh, are increasingly a career path for people with my skill set, you know, social scientists with some tech literacy, and figuring out what that means and how it's similar or to or different from universities, because it's not like universities have clean hands in this regard either. Um, you know, figuring that out is, is a really important question for different parts of the academic profession. So one of the one of the concerns that we have um, about uh, our involvement in AI ethics, our involvement is in these institutions is, you know, what is happening with the critiques that we've usually lodged against technologists um, and against the technology professions. It really doesn't seem that long ago that the dominant understanding of uh, Silicon Valley and its development of new tools was that, you know, the technology is neutral. And whatever you do with it, that's up to you and that's your responsibility. But, you know, we just make tools. But what we see in, you know, Mark Zuckerberg's repeated congressional testimony or in these, you know, codes of AI ethics that, that we looked at from all these different bodies all over the world is that that's not longer, no longer the case. The just a tool argument does not rule the day. I mean, some people certainly believe it, but it, it seems like the profession that these large firms and you know various academic units really seriously acknowledge the responsibility of the computing professions, and acknowledge that there are some sort of worldviews and values that are built into technology. Um, most obviously in like the choice of what training data are used for machine learning solutions. And those decisions have very real consequences. So it is not just a tool, but is a tool designed by a specific person with specific values, you know, implicitly or explicitly, and that has a specific effects on the world. 
And that is in many ways like a massive victory for technology critics, you know, to have this like core idea of values and design that designers are responsible for the values that go into their machine be accepted by a wide group of people is is a big big deal you know for for decades we have felt like we were yelling at the wall um for this kind of thing and now it is you know very much at the center of our public discussion about ai and machine learning the concern of course is that these you know fundamental critiques that we've been lobbying for a long time are perhaps being uh, ingested and transformed and incorporated and used in a normative way that we wouldn't necessarily approve of. You know, that uh, once we have lobbed that critique, it is taken and recycled in some other way that we wouldn't necessarily approve. Uh, and it's, you know, it's an empirical and it's a political question as to what the end result of that process will be. But many of us are grappling with this question of what is happening to our critiques, um, in a very material way, because sometimes we as critics are invited into these institutions uh, and do very productive work in the same places that we were critiquing for a long time. Uh, and figuring out what that means is a really important question for us technology critics right now. Yeah, you, uh, you keep mentioning uh, Mark Zuckerberg and, uh, and his testimony, and, um, but I, I thought it was... Uh, Interesting what you said earlier that, that he comes across as kind of uh, struggling and, and figuring it out. I think, I, I don't know what, what he's thinking or doing, uh, but that certainly is what it seems like. It's we are watching one person trying to figure this out. And I mean, if there's one thing that has nothing to do with being a member of a profession is the image of one person trying to figure out anything and, and never mind, you know, uh, all the people who should have a stake in these conversations. He, he, so the, the, the idea that, um, you know, that the great kind of originators of, of this tech uh, and who certainly um, you know, bear responsibility and also deserve credit for doing lots of really uh, cool things, that, that now you know, the response is, oh, because we started it you know, personally, <laughs> we're going to figure out how to fix it. So yeah, that to me seems like, no, that's not the way it's going to work. And even if there were a way to do it, people wouldn't accept it because they, they weren't really consulted. And so we're watching this person trying to figure out something that really he has no business trying to figure out. And, um, but I, I, um, I want to get back to this, this idea of, um, of, of the experts so, and, and technologists. Um, because so one of the ways in, uh, in which you can frame this issue is in terms of professionalism and so on, uh, who is a professional, who isn't, um, but another way I think in which you may frame this, you know, this challenge is, um, is, is expertise. You know, to what extent uh, is expertise relevant, significant, uh, maybe a problem? And so for yourself, you know, as a technologist uh, and in, in a certain way an, an expert, um, I'm curious what you think, you know, what the role of expertise in, in this you know, ethical AI project properly construed might be? Yes, yeah, so the, I can talk a little bit about what, the, what expertise is doing right now, and then perhaps a little about like normatively what I, how I might prefer it were different. So right now, in these ethics manifestos that talk about the values that technologies and technologists should have um, when building machine learning solutions that 
do everything from you know rate your risk of recidivism to you know, decide whether or not to hire you or not. Uh, when we produce these ethical documents, they often have this really interesting contradiction where they say that you know on the one hand, AI will be deployed in a bunch of places all over the world in a bunch of domains, and that's going to happen, and it's going to have catastrophic effects on everyone's daily lives, um, most obviously in the case of automation. So most of these epic manifestos accept that uh, millions of people's jobs will just disappear because of advances that AI makes. Uh, I empirically do not accept that, but that is a base assumption of a lot of this work, that there will be this great disruption, um, like a natural disaster. So on the one hand, there is this kind of technological determinism about what AI is going to do to the world that's inevitable. On the other hand, these documents very much say that professionals in computing are responsible for what goes into AI and that they themselves must make ethical decisions about what their designs do. And it's kind of hard to square those two things, where you have the responsibility of the profession and the natural disaster that is AI. The way we see um, that contradiction resolved is by um, you know, what we would call like a, uh, a values-driven determinism. AI is going to happen, but it is going to be an expert-driven process because of how complicated it is. So the interventions, these codes of ethics, are necessarily targeted at the people best capable of intervening in that process. Primarily technologists, secondarily lawyers, its own kind of technical expertise. And there are those people who are going to steward the uh, kind of inevitable AI wave into a way that is most beneficial for all of society. So right now, the way that AI ethics is, is operationalized is usually as an expert-driven process. Occasionally, I'm thinking especially of the um, Toronto Declaration on AI and Human Rights, there is recognition of other kinds of expertise that might be involved in the process, including, for example, like the expertise of affected communities. You know, you could think about the expertise of judges in designing um, a risk uh, recidivism algorithm or something like that. Uh, and, and in a very few cases, but you know, still some that exist, there is the more um, human-computer interaction interpretation of expertise of lay users, of individual uh, people affected by this algorithm or using it as having some knowledge about how it should work in the world. That is very different still from a broad democratic idea of participation. For me, I don't think I or anyone uh, in a democratic society needs to be an expert on what is going on in order to have some say about what, how it affects them and in what way. If we all needed to be, I don't know, lawyers in order to say something about the law, then none of us would have anything to say about the law because most of us cannot be lawyers. Most of us are not interested in lawyers, and we need many other people besides lawyers to make a fair society work.
So I think there's a difference between widening the circle of expertise, no matter how far you widen that circle, and a more democratic uh, governance of these systems as part of a society. So you uh, mentioned the, the coming natural disaster, um, and in a way, um, there's already been a, a natural disaster, in, um, as, as you described, in, in 2016, um, and a lot of, uh, in, in, in your view, a lot of the excitement about ethics of AI is a response to, you know, to that previous disaster. So one of the uh, things that I find interesting about your work is, uh, is, is how you connect um, the interest and the evolution, maybe the hype about ethics of AI, um, to similar um, uh, phenomena in, in other contexts. So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking the crises and the significance of crises in the history of business ethics, uh, for example. So, so in, in, in this 2019 paper, you uh, mentioned uh, an article by uh, Professor Abend about uh, you know, how, how the history of business ethics used to be written, but really you know, should be written. And, and, uh, and it, it appears to be kind of just a sequence of crises, which then prompt and some kind of ethical response. But in the end, kind of, there's you know, nothing new under the sun. Um, so I'm curious whether you think that th that's going to be the, you know, the, the story, or maybe already has been the story of, uh, of ethics of AI. Yeah, so, so to give some context, um, context Gabriel Abend has this um, concept called the moral background, where we study uh, ethics as a sociological problem, as an empirical problem, um, to understand where ethical systems come from, how a society, a society decides what is moral or what is not. And Abend talks about the moral background as a sort of ethical grammar. These uh, rules that say who is a member of an ethical community, what sort of examples you use to make ethical arguments, uh, what sort of ethical reasoning dominates a society. And he develops that concept particularly because he sees, you know, in America, the um, history of business ethics as being marked by continuity. It is a fairly boring story <laughs> about, uh, you know, a disaster happens, a financial crash in particular, and then people get together and say, well, everyone was way too greedy, uh, and uh, overreached their bounds. They flew too close to the sun. So uh, then we have some designated representatives of the industry step up to say what the uh, good version of the profession looks like. We develop some uh, new classes at leading business schools that train good versions of these professionals. Um, we maybe have like some, some light regulation that punishes the bad apples, but by no means um, punishes the rest of the crop. And we settle into uh, a version of society that largely keeps business as usual until we get the next disaster and then things repeat again and again. And for Abend, the, the really interesting um, action is not in these kind of first order principles, people shouldn't be greedy. It is instead about the types of reasoning that people use to reach those conclusions. That is where the action is, and that is where you can see conflict uh, or cooperation or, or uh, mergers between different ethical systems. Um, so for him, you know, he marks out um, two different positions in the history of American business ethics where you see on the, on the one hand this um, 
ethics as being good for business, you know, responsible businessmen saying that we need to work ethically um, because that ensures that the market, the market fluctuates normally, uh, no one screws up the system for everyone else and people trust us. And then on the other hand, you see a strong history in American business ethics um, based on uh, Christian theology, where you see the Christian businessman um, pursuing ethics as, as part of his charge as a religious person. And by looking at the moral background and how they make those arguments and the vocabulary that they use, we can instead see these different schools of, of business ethics thought evolving over time. I think something is, is absolutely happening like that in the history of AI, where we, we do see, you know, on, on these first order principles, uh, a fair amount of continuity. Like we already talked about already, the questions that we're having about AI ethics today are pretty similar to debates that we were having in the 60s and 70s during the last AI boom. Some of the actors changed, the examples changed. You know, we weren't using self-driving cars for all our examples then. But we had trolley problems. Oh, and uh, um, but where there might be more action, where there might be more conflict is behind the scenes. And I, I take that point of Abend very seriously, but I disagree with him insofar as he tells the story of business ethics primarily as a story of people, of, of business ethicists, of people within the profession defining rules for other business people. And what I was alluding to in talking about the kind of abolitionist ethic that um, drives the movement for black lives, that drives immigrant rights organizing, is that there are other modes of ethical reasoning that are right now directly in conflict with the mode of ethical reasoning that we call um, ethical design. The abolitionist ethic is one of them, the other is an alternative emerging from within the computing profession itself. And that is what we kind of loosely term the tech won't build it movement, which is organizing tech professionals across the industry, but especially in big tech, your Facebooks, your Googles, or something like that. And this loose network of labor organizers within tech uh, stress a kind of um, workplace democracy ethic where they talk about their power in the system um, being that they design things and that they should have a say over what that is used for, and that they do not agree with how things are currently being used. You know, they got into computing because they saw its potential and they wanted to make the world a better place. They did not want to build digital cages. Uh, they did not want to build systems that put kids in prison on the border. And, you know, if you had told me even five years ago that we would see this level of rebellion in tech companies across the world, I would have asked what you're smoking. I thought it was incredibly unlikely that these um, educated, well-compensated people in distributed workplaces um, with a culture of loving what you do and doing what you love would rebel on the level that we've seen thus far and that they would do so in alliance with service workers, drivers, security workers, food service workers on campus, and in alliance with abolitionists in the movement for black lives and immigrant rights organizing. So in, uh, in tech labor, in the kind of tech won't build it campaign, there is a direct challenge to AI ethics as it currently exists 
talking about not building things, talking about professional ethics in very different terms, often throwing the tech ethics language back at the leaders of these companies saying that they failed to live up to their promise. So design, um, ethical design as it currently exists in AI is under attack from these two fronts, is under attack by abolitionists, is under attack by labor organizers. And that fight is a live fight. And I think it is the outcome of that fight that will determine the kind of bounds of the computing profession and the rules that it has going forward. Because it doesn't look like right now we're going to get a lot of, you know, kind of government regulation that'll set the terms of the profession and um, by policy means. And even if we do, I don't think that would kind of tamp down on these social movements. You know, these uh, things that are big political fights are also big ethical fights about what the good life is, how it is defined, what sort of reasoning we use to get there. Well, I, thanks very much, uh, Professor Green. I, I don't want to end our conversation without uh, giving you an opportunity to uh, talk about your uh, forthcoming or ongoing project, which illustrates uh, another uh, fascinating approach to, to these questions, namely um, ethnography. So um, go ahead and tell us. Yeah, sure. So yeah. like I said, I'm a cultural studies scholar, and i am always been fascinated by questions about how a problem becomes a problem, uh, very much inspired by the Birmingham School in that regard, especially policing the crisis. Uh, and so the book that I've been working on for many years right now um, is about how learn to code becomes a problem and how especially how it becomes the default solution to the problems of poverty and unemployment in the developed world. So I spent many years doing field work with different organizations that turn the problem of poverty into a problem of technology that teach people to code, uh, socially minded startups, libraries and schools in Washington DC. And I saw what the effect, why they pursued that mission and what the effect of pursuing that mission was on their operations, on their identity, on their relationship with their various stakeholders. Um, so the story I tell is, is one about how particular institutions take on a, a big new mission, one that is very hard to see results often a lot of the time. You know, it's hard to uh, trace the relationship between, you know, degrees and, and uh, employment out in the world. Uh, but nonetheless, this is a, a task that lots of other institutions have taken on. So I'm very interested in why they do that and how it affects the people that they're trying to help. That book is uh, under contract with the MIT Press and should come out spring 2021. Okay, well, awesome. Maybe you can come back and talk to us about the, about the book. I'd love to. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks very much for joining us. Um, and um, I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you, Marcus. Thanks for listening to Let's Get Ethical, the podcast of the Center for Ethics and its Ethics of AI Lab at the University of Toronto. To learn more about the Center's activities, check out our website, ethics.utoronto.ca.